You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And speaking of love, (laughs) on today's episode, we are going to tackle the science of love. And to be totally honest with you guys, we were really hoping to release this episode around Valentine's Day, but that didn't happen. Um, Here we are in March, um, but still a really interesting topic that we hope that you'll enjoy. But before we dig in, let's recap last week's episode. Um, We shared an interview that we conducted uh, in August 2021 with Dr. Tom Frieden about the pandemic. Um, For those who are not aware, Dr. Frieden is a physician. He's the former director of the CDC, the former health commissioner for New York City, and he currently serves as the president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives. And that's a public health organization that's focused on cardiovascular disease and the prevention of epidemics. So it was a really cool conversation. And even though it took place six months ago, a lot of it was very relevant. Um, We talked about things like vaccine hesitancy, navigating the pandemic with young children, mandates, lockdowns, um, the role of testing, uh, our approach to emergency preparedness in general in this country, and much more. Um, And I have to, oh, I was going to say, I have to say, Jess, um, the emergency preparedness topic, that's going to be relevant for for quite a a long time if we don't address it appropriately. Oh my gosh. I mean, really, that's the one thing that this pandemic, I mean, I don't even want to say silver lining because I don't know that there's a silver lining to a pandemic, but I'm hoping that this has really opened up our eyes to to how ill-prepared we were um, for this type of pandemic. And, and you know, it's very possible that there will be others in our lifetime and, and we need to do a much better job of, of bolstering our emergency preparedness, our, pre- our approach to preventative medicine and preventative health, um, and just our public health infrastructure in general. So, yeah, it was a really awesome discussion and we hope that you'll check it out. So shall we dig into this week's topic, Andrea? Let's do it. (laughs) All right. So there is so much research. Honestly, when we were preparing for this episode, we we came across hundreds of studies um, and research that suggests that strong social ties are linked to a longer life, but also um, a better quality of life. And we're going to dissect that in this episode. And that in contrast, loneliness and social isolation are linked to poor health um, and, and things like depression. Um, there are other poor health outcomes that we'll chat about and increased risk of early death. Now, there is also a ton of research on the impact of social relationships on stress and on heart-related risks. Uh, Andrea is going to really dig into um, the, the the chemistry of, of love and how that impacts our health. Um, and so I think it'll be a really, really cool uh, conversation. So I just wanted to kick things off by saying that this is really, uh, it's important to acknowledge that this conversation warrants a longer discussion 
discussion on the social determinants of health. And that's a really important buzz phrase in in public health um, that I'm hoping is something that there's a lot more emphasis on in in research because it's really the the science of how, um, you know, there are economic and social conditions that influence um, our individual and group differences in health status. And And just, you know, I mean, even just from a really high level, you know, this is something that, you know, we've learned about from, you know, early on in our our science as education, but socioeconomic status, obviously, mm-hmm. in in countries that don't have universal health care, that impacts your access to health care, that impacts your ability to get preventative medicine, that impacts um, what sort of community benefits you have access to. And so, of course, those things, those factors that impact you on a day-to-day basis are going to also impact your health and your quality of life. And it's so well documented that these things impact basically every single health outcome that it's just sort of, you know, we we automatically control for things like sex and education and socioeconomic status and, you know, things like that in, in any kind of research because we know that those factors independently um, impact again, any any health outcome that we study. So super, super important. Um, so I, the one other thing I have to mention here, I know early in my public health career, um, when we were studying social determinants of health, the name that cropped up all the time was Sir Michael Marmot. Um, if you are looking for a really fantastic book on social determinants of health, pick up The Status Syndrome. Um, it's a book authored by Sir uh, Michael Marmot about how our social standing directly affects our health and our life expectancy and things like autonomy, a sense of control over our lives, and social connectedness really have the greatest impact on our health and life expectancy. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Social relationships, both quantity and quality, affect our mental health, our emotional health, our health behaviors, physical health, and our mortality risks. Um, Sociologists have played a really central role in establishing this link between social relationships and health outcomes and identifying explanations for this link um, and this social variation, uh, you know, by gender, by race, at the population level. And so many studies have shown us that social relationships have both short and long-term effects on our health for better and for worse, and that these effects emerge in our childhood and we see them throughout the course of our lives. Um, And they really foster this cumulative advantage or disadvantage in health. So there are studies, we're going to link a ton of studies in our show notes today, Um, but the converse is true. So a a lack of social ties, we've seen so many studies document that this is associated with depression and later life cognitive decline, as well as with increased mortality. So there's there's this one study in particular, it examined um, more than 300,000 people. It found that lack of strong relationships increased the risk of premature death from all causes by 50%, um, an effect on mortality risk that's roughly comparable to smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day and greater than obesity and physical activity. I thought that that was really 
profound that yeah that it's very it's very striking and I and I think if I recall correctly that study was was looking at you know not just romantic relationships but but community relationships friendships and things like that and of course we're going to be focusing mostly on romantic relationships here but I think it's important to understand that these are all sorts of social connections right and and that's something sure. that we've we've seen you know some of the detrimental impacts on on um social connections during the pandemic where you know people who have been forced into isolation particularly in countries that actually had strict lockdowns you know we've seen changes in levels of diagnosed anxiety disorders and depression and things like that and so you know of course we're still in this this public health crisis but I do think it's important to to underscore the importance of person-to-person connection that is such an important point and yes I think that the the focus of of at least the studies that that I'm I'll be referencing on this episode are about romantic love but I did but I did pull several studies um that are you know just about for example neighborhood social cohesion mm-hmm. friendships um and so we're not only talking about romantic love but also on you know social bonds and connectedness in general so all right just zooming out for a second again you know, just to sort of repeat what I've been saying, um, so many studies showing that a variety of social relationships can help to reduce stress and, and um, in particular, heart-related risks. I found studies, and, and Andrea, I can't wait for you to weigh in on this, about how these connections can actually improve our immunity, our ability to fight off germs. Um, obviously, they could give us, uh, you know, in terms of emotional health, they could give us a more positive outlook on life. Um, things like physical contact, and this can range from hugging, hand-holding, mm-hmm. to actual sexual intercourse, can trigger a release of hormones and brain chemicals that make us feel good but also have other biological benefits. And Andrea, I know you're you're going to <laughs> yeah. dive I was gonna, into this. I was going to say, I don't want to give away the punchline, but, but yeah, I mean, a lot of the chemicals that are implicated in, you know, romantic love um, also have obviously systemic effects, including on our cardiovascular system and our immune system. So of course, it's very logical that that these types of relationships and these types of bonds would have positive impacts on those types you know, those systems in our body too. So as we said, you know, marriage is one of the most studied social bonds. Um, and, and study after study has found that when, well, married couples tend to live longer and have better health than unmarried couples. And Andrea, as we were chatting about before this episode started, that that positive impact is far more pronounced among men than it is for women. And I know yeah. we could chat <laughs> we could chat about that. Um, but so in in general that you know when one spouse improves his or her health behaviors, um, you know, if they pick up exercising, if they choose to to drink less or smoke less or if they do things like get a flu vaccine or a covid vaccine, the other spouse is more likely to do so. Um, and, and you know, 
something that I remember learning a, a lot about when I was um, a student is the impact of marriage on things like well visits mm-hmm. and preventative care visits. And, you know, again, particularly for men, um, you know, women are going to nudge their, their, their husbands, their partners, you know, go to the doctor, you know, they're, they're going to push them to take care of themselves. And so again, that positive impact, we're, we're seeing it significantly higher for for men than for women and Andrea you made a really great comment before we we hit record Mm -hmm. that you know a lot of the the caretaking burden um falls on women as opposed to men which also explains why those positive impacts are are often less (laughs) less pronounced (laughs) for women than they are for men because we take on so much of the stress of of caretaking for our partners for our children for our parents later in life and that impacts our our health and well-being and I think you know obviously you know we're using marriage here but of course this is going to extend to any sort of domestic partnership right Um, absolutely you know I, I know nowadays the actual numbers of you know indwelling partnerships the numbers of those who are actually married versus not legally married um you know that's that's shifting the balance a little bit but a lot of these sorts of things are going to be um, the true when you're cohabitating. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so when there when those relationships are full of conflict, these health benefits that we're describing can actually shrink really significantly. And so there are tons of studies, we'll link, there are several NIH-funded studies that show that how couples behave during conflict has a really profound impact on our health. And in particular, things like wound healing, um, when we look at uh, blood levels of stress hormones. Um, So positive relationships and interactions relieve harmful levels of stress, which can adversely affect coronary arteries, gut function, insulin regulation, and the immune system. And there's another line of research that suggests that caring behaviors trigger the release of stress-reducing hormones. So there was one study of more than 40 married couples, and researchers measured changes to body chemistry over a 24-hour period, both before and after spouses discussed a conflict. Um, And conflict, uh, we're talking about things like um, topics of of money, in-laws, and communication. And it wasn't, I know, I'm chuckling the the in-laws thing. (laughs) I'm going to bite my tongue right now. But, you know, it wasn't just, you know, the, the conversation. It it was the quality of the discussion that really mattered. And couples who were more hostile to each other showed much larger negative changes, including spikes in stress hormones and inflammation-related molecules. This is a a great advertisement for uh, working on communication skills. Right? Right? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, because in, in the more well-functioning partnerships, couples that acknowledged each other, um, you know, acknowledged that they didn't always agree on things or found humor in the situation, you know, didn't get sarcastic or roll their eyes or dismiss their partner when they were chatting, they had more positive outcomes. Um, there was another study uh, that found that blister wounds, I thought this was really interesting around wound healing, blister wounds healed sub- substantially more slowly in couples who were nastier to each other than in those who were um, kinder and gentler during these difficult conversations. Um, there was also research that uh, couples with uh, hostile marriages or partnerships uh, and depression may also be at risk for for weight issues. Mm -hmm. So after eating high fat meals and discussing difficult topics, uh, troubled couples tend to burn fewer calories than their uh, less hostile counterparts. And metabolism in these couples was slower in ways that um, that could account for weight gain across time. Now, I'm not going to get into this in this episode, but of course, cortisol, which is a a hormone that is secreted um, during times of stress, has certainly been implicated in things like weight gain or inability to lose weight and things like that. So I think, you know, the big takeaway here is that, you know, these these psychosocial encounters have true physiological impacts that are much more broad than the specific interaction at hand. So, you know, it really underscores the importance of um, productive communication, I think, here. Absolutely. The other thing to point out here is that these impacts actually um, become stronger over <laughs> over the lifespan. They become stronger with age. So there was one study I wanted to highlight out of Michigan State University that studied um, data on the health and sexuality of over 2,000 older people. So uh, I think participants were between 57 and 85 years of age. And good good marriage quality and partnership was linked to reduced risk of developing cardiovascular disease, while on the flip side, bad partnerships were tied to increased risk, particularly in women, and that association was actually strengthened with age. Um, Interestingly, they they also looked at links between late life sexuality and health, and uh, you know they they looked at whether sex among the very old is beneficial or risky to heart health. And studies suggest that for many older people, sex quality and sex life are important to overall quality of life. And I, I chuckled when I read this. So uh, you know, I, I just moved from Florida. Are you familiar with the villages in Florida? Yeah, oh, yeah I am. <laughs> I, one of my is, one of my really good friends from high school his his grand his grandparents lived down there we actually we actually stayed with them when we were in college we had like a little four day trip and um, played a lot of shuffleboard in there and it was, these yeah. people are doing more than playing shuffleboard yeah. Andrea they Not are living sure. it up and just anecdotally um, you know I mentioned that my my hubby is a, an ER doc and he said he saw. So so many patients, um, really elderly patients who are coming in with STIs and yeah, STDs. I was say. And it's, they are very sexually active. Um, and, you know, a lot of times they, you know, they're not worried about 
pregnancy at that right. age. And so they're not practicing safe sex. And so, you know, on one hand, while it's great, it seems to really be beneficial to have, you know, high quality sex life later in life. If you are partaking, yeah, please, please remember please to have safe condom. sex. <laughs> we don't need syphilis epidemics on top of COVID oh pandemic. my god oh my god um and just a total anecdote did you know i didn't realize this that a pineapple is sort of a si- signal to folks that you are ready and uh willing to to mingle in, <laughs> in the villages well i think in the villages but also just in general that if you huh. put a pine i don't know I, i'm really <laughs> i don't know if this is true but if you put a pineapple on your front porch wow. <laughs> you're sort of signaling to folks anyway okay but let, let's get back on track here <laughs> so i wanted to just talk again about depression there, there's a lot of research on depression and there's this one study in particular It's a very large 10-year nationally representative longitudinal study and uh, looking at the impact on uh, quality of social relationships on depression. And so they found that risk of depression was significantly greater among those with baseline social strain, lack of social support, and poor overall um, relationship quality. Those with the lowest overall quality of social relationships had more than double the risk of depression than those with the highest quality. And poor quality of relationship with a spouse or a partner and family each independently increased risk of depression. And interestingly, I just thought it was worth noting that social isolation did not predict future depression, nor did it moderate the effect of relationship quality. So I I think this is a really important point because, you know, yes, depression is a mental illness. We know it is associated with changes in brain chemistry and structure and things like that. So I think it's important to understand that it's not necessarily a causal relationship, but because a lot of these chemicals that are, you know, or chemical imbalances that are implicated in depression are also implicated in relationships, um, it certainly stands to reason that they they would be linked together in, in this sort of um, correlative relationship. So I, I want to point out here, there are so many outcomes that we could talk about, um, and really we, we'll, we'll link to a bunch of studies, but so we're talking about things like depression, um, uh, you know, stress hormones, we chatted about things like wound healing. I mean, we're really across the board, the impact and uh, quality of our relationships is impacting our health. I wanted to flag that there are so many other health, health outcomes. Um, for example, there was a study um, looking at having a satisfying sex life and risk of high blood pressure. Um, As I mentioned, lots about uh, heart-related problems and cardiovascular health. Um, And and really, we're we're not just talking about romantic relationships. So we're talking about things like uh, relationships with friends, with family, with neighbors, coworkers, clubs, religious groups. And and really, time and time again, studies are, are finding that people who have larger and more diverse types of social 
parental ties tend to live longer and again have fewer uh, of these health problems and, and a higher quality of life. So there was this large Swedish study of people who are over the age of 75 and they found that dementia risk was lowest in those with a variety of satisfying contacts, uh, contacts with friends and relatives. And then there was another study that found that neighborhood social cohesion was associated with a reduction in depressive symptoms in older people. Um, I mean, I can go on and on here. I don't know um, how much people want to hear <laughs> about this, uh, but there was this one study, and Andrea, I think you probably have have a lot to say about this. There was a study out of Carnegie Mellon, um, and and in a, in a nutshell, they were looking at the impact of uh, the quality of relationships on our immunity, and they found that more than tw- uh, more than two hundred healthy volunteers they exposed them to the common cold virus and observed them for a week in a controlled setting, and they found that folks who had uh, more diverse social networks, you know, more types of connections. Well, I should say the more types of connections that they had, the less likely they were to develop a cold after exposure to the virus. Um, People with more types of connections also tended to have better health behaviors, such as not smoking or drinking, which I guess could also impact um, our our immune response. Right, Andrea? (laughs) You took took the words out of it. I mean, yeah, this is super multifactorial, right? Um, certainly, you know, if people have really strong social networks, they are likely more cognizant of healthful behaviors. We know that the immune system is really, uh, it impacts pretty much every system in our body from wound healing, but it's also implicated in obesity. Um, it's obviously implicated in protection against infectious diseases, um, and recovery from those. It's also impact, you know, implicated in the progression of cancer. And so, Obviously, you know, these sorts of things can have an impact on your immune system function. Um, We know that reducing levels of stress, you know, ensures that your immune system's functioning optimally, um, you know, uh, adequate sleep, preventative health checks, all of these things. So, of course, I don't think you can pin it down to one factor, but I think, you know, having these sorts of healthy networks is going to improve your overall health health which obviously will also impact your immune system in a positive way and and this ties together with the episode that we recorded on longevity right mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. you know there's a clear association between these positive social networks and um longevity right so quality of life our longevity our cognition later in life i mean all of these things um and if you don't know what i'm talking about um we recorded an episode that um we, we looked at the different blue zones and these are places around the world that have the highest concentration of centenarians Mm -hmm. um, who live to be 100 years or older and some of the factors that that, that seem to be associated with longevity. So it all ties together. So Andrea, I think, you know, maybe this is a a, a good segue. We'd love to hear about the, the chemistry of love and how, you know, what are the types of things that happen in our bodies physiologically when we're in love, when we have social support and when we feel connected. So break it down for us. So, you know, (laughs) Jess, you made a great point. We were talking about, you know, um, reduction in cognition decline and, and reduction in dementia and things like that. And, and obviously, as you can imagine, a lot of 
the science of love, yes, it's all chemistry, right? Everything is chemistry. Everything is chemicals. I think I think if you guys have been listening to us for a while, you know, you'll know that, you know, even how you perceive a flavor of something is related to chemicals. So, um, but a lot of the chemicals implicated in love and attachment and relationships are neurotransmitters. And so these are chemicals produced by our brain or, or um, you know, transported to our brain that basically act as chemical messengers from neuron to neuron that elicit some sort of cellular process. And so certainly, you know, optimizing that can affect things that are also associated with our brain, like cognitive decline and dementia and things like that. So um, yeah, I mean, I think the big picture here is really everything is interconnected. But if you really wanted to break it down, romantic love could be dissected into kind of three categories. We would say lust would be our first category. Attraction would be our second category. And attachment would be the third category. And so this is obviously a big simplification. Um, and we know that there are a lot of other social things involved and psychological things involved, but um, just really from a high level view. And so the chemicals that are actually involved in these three different categories are different, as you would expect, because these three phenomenons have different effects, right? So lust, that's going to be kind of your your initial, you know, your your sexual hunger, right? So this is this is a really this is a really primal evolutionary thing. So this is your evolutionary drive for reproduction. So, you know, when we talk about fitness in a scientific context, fitness is the ability of an organism to reproduce and produce offspring essentially. So so lust is kind of our fitness drive. And so this is very very tightly implicated um, or involved with sexual hormone signaling. So the hypothalamus region in the brain regulates the release of sex hormones, testosterone and estrogen. And so contrary to what some people might think, testosterone is actually produced in both men and women to a lower extent in women, but testosterone ultimately has the effect of increasing libido in people. Um, Estrogen also has this impact, but to a lesser degree than testosterone. So testosterone will be produced by the gonads predominantly, um, but the hypothalamus is regulating the secretion of that. So in in males, it's going to be produced by the testes, and in females, that's going to be produced by the ovaries. Um, And it's also produced by the adrenal glands as well. And so these levels are going to be balanced, but but during this initial phase of lust, you know, that kind of can't be satiated, have to have you feeling this is really driven by the sex hormones. Um, And that's going to be traced back to this this really primal evolutionary need to to reproduce um the next phase is going to be the attraction pathway so these this is kind of the stereotypical category that we think about in in early stages of romance and early stages of of um, a relationship you know the honeymoon phase and things like that and so this is the brain pathways that control our reward behavior and and often is is termed this this honeymoon period and so the biggest contributors here are dopamine and norepinephrine and also a compound called um, phenylethylamine or PEA. So dopamine is a neurotransmitter. Again, as I mentioned, neurotransmitters are chemicals that chemical messengers that 
transmit messages from neuron to neuron, so regions in our central nervous system and in our brain, and they also have far-reaching effects in our body because we have different types of neurons in our body. So as Jess mentioned, she was talking about things like holding hands can improve this sort of social connection, and that's because you actually have specific types of neurons that have touch receptors in our skin and, and in our appendages that can sense physical contact. And that actually can trigger these sorts of neuronal signaling that can lead to the production or the secretion of these types of chemicals. So dopamine is produced in specific regions of the brain called the substantia nigra, the ventral tegmental area, and the hypothalamus. So dopamine has really, really broad effects in the body beyond just relationships. Dopamine is implicated in things like circulation and blood flow and regulating heart rate. It's also implicated in things like digestive processes, um, motor function, processing and integrating pain sensations. It's also involved in um, function of the pancreas and insulin signaling, as well as stress responses and sleep, but also, of course, our uh, memory, our cognition, and also this pleasure and reward-seeking behavior. So when we discuss the role of dopamine in the attraction phase of a relationship, this is a pathway called the mesolimbic pathway. And so this is one of our brain reward pathways. So basically when we activate this pathway with the um, signaling of dopamine, it basically tells us that this feels good, keep doing this. So it's it's, it's triggering this repeat reward pathway. So it also um, signals to memory centers in the brain to say, hey, pay attention of how this experience feels because we want to keep doing this in the future. And so, of course, if you think of this from an evolutionary standpoint, this is, of course, a very ancient pathway. So the limbic system is one of these ancient systems in our brain that is responsible for helping to facilitate behaviors even in more primitive organisms. So when we're talking about this mesolimbic pathway with regard to dopamine, this pathway is going to do things like reinforce motivation. So your desire to interact with this person that is leading to this production and secretion of dopamine, it's going to improve feelings of giddiness and pleasure and satisfaction. But it's also really important to understand that that you need a balance here, right? We know that studies have shown that um, low levels of dopamine can be implicated in things like depression, and it's also implicated in neurodegenerative disorders like Parkinson's disease. Um, but on the other side, really high levels of dopamine or kind of persistent craving of dopamine can also lead to things like addiction-related behaviors. And so we've seen that people that use um, drugs like cocaine have persistently high levels of dopamine and dopamine signaling that can actually... Uh, exacerbate these types of pathways and and that sort of craving leads to that addictive response where people have recurrent uses of, of drugs or things like that. And that also can be associated with things like gambling and other sorts of addictive type behaviors. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. 
This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. So then, um, total side note, Andrea, yeah. I'm sorry. This Have you ever seen what is, uh, Requiem for a Dream? Oh, yes. Tell me that that movie, I feel like that really captures the... the um, the extent of the control yeah. that these pathways have over yeah. our behaviors. If you haven't seen it, it's it's a I it's don't know, very good. it's very good. It's very dark, but it really yeah, you're absolutely right. It's highs and lows, and um, the complexities of of all of this sort of brain chemistry and different types of addictive behaviors, right? Yes, you know, g- gambling addiction, shopping addictions. I mean, everything that you just mentioned. Anyway, yeah. sorry, absolutely. keep going. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. <laughs> Um, you know, and of course, you know, as I mentioned, this is still a simplification, but I think it's really important to understand that, you know, these types of chemical signals really do have far reaching effects in our body. So the other one that's, that's kind of a key player in the attraction phase phase is norepinephrine, which is also called noradrenaline. And so you've probably heard this in the context of our fight or flight response. So this is in fact a hormone that is related to adrenaline as well. So they're both involved in that. And this is also a neurotransmitter and it's a hormone. Um, And a hormone basically means that it's a chemical that's produced that has systemic effects on our body. So it basically is released into the circulation and it travels throughout our body. And so norepinephrine has consequences beyond just, you know, facilitating attraction, right? It increases our heart rate. It increases our blood pressure. It increases our mobility by by increasing our energy or the energy, the blood that's routed to skeletal muscle. So these are all things that you would expect to be involved in this fight or flight response, right? This, oh, there's a predator coming to attack me. I need to prepare to either run away or to fight back. And, and it's very interesting that these are also implicated in this, this attraction phase of a relationship. It also decreases blood flow to our GI tract. So it has this this polar opposite effect on our our gastrointestinal system because when you're trying to fight off a predator um, or a threat, you don't need to focus on digesting food, right? Um, But it also increases our alertness, which of course evolutionarily is impacted in that fight or flight response, but that's also impacted in our ability to become attracted to and pay attention to a sexual you know, being, right? And as a result, it also increases arousal. So um, norepinephrine is produced by the locus ceruleus in the pons region of the brain, and it can also be released directly from the adrenal glands. And so this in combination with dopamine um, kind of facilitate this, this attraction phase. So this reward, keep doing what you're doing, this feels good sort of phase of a relationship. Um, we also see a reduction in the, the serotonin levels um, in our brain because we have these negative regulation pathways. And so this balance of these sorts of chemical messengers is really important. So the third one that's really important in regulating this is this, this chemical phenylethylamine, also called PEA. And this is synthesized in particular types of neurons um, called catecholamine neurons from the amino acid phenylalanine. So basically we eat this amino acid. It's found in, you know, different proteins. So amino acids are building blocks of proteins. 
Um, so we can actually consume this, but we can also produce it ourselves. So because it is produced by a variety of animals, plants, and bacteria, um, it's actually found in a lot of things we eat. So that includes chocolate. And that's actually one reason why chocolate is implicated in making people feel good because it has this PEA molecule. Um, now, as I mentioned, we can also produce it from consuming this, this amino acid. Um, but it's interesting because it actually acts as an amphetamine. So it's a naturally produced amphetamine that, that we synthesize in our brain. Um, we can also consume it. And it works in concert with the other ones that I discussed, dopamine and serotonin and norepinephrine. And so PEA actually helps to facilitate the release of dopamine and norepinephrine, and it also prevents the rapid degradation of them. So these chemicals typically have very short half-lives. You don't want them to persist for a really long time because then it's going to lead to those sorts of negative consequences like you know, persistently elevated heart rate and blood pressure, which is implicated in a stress response, or persistently high levels of dopamine signaling, which I said was implicated in, you know, addictive-related behaviors. Um, So PEA is considered a neuromodulator. So it basically helps to regulate this sort of signaling that's implicated in this phase of attachment. And then the final stage of romantic love would be, sorry, attraction. That's what I meant. Um, But this final stage of romantic love would be our attachment phase. And so just like the other two phases, these are two different chemicals that are predominantly implicated. And again, this is not to say that there aren't other things involved, but we're trying to simplify it here. So the two big players in attachment are oxytocin and vasopressin. So oxytocin is my favorite. Sorry. (laughs) Can't wait to learn about it. So oxytocin is obviously very important in female reproductive functions. So it's important from all sorts of things from sexual activity, but also during childbirth and also during nursing. And so um, I'll talk very briefly about that and then we'll kind of jump into how it plays a role in attachment um, behavior. So so for females, most of you are going to be familiar with oxytocin in the context of labor. So during labor, oxytocin increases uterine contractions. So that's going to actually promote labor and it's going to facilitate dilation of the cervix and the vagina and that's going to enable the vaginal canal to widen you're going to get more oxytocin release so that's going to facilitate more contraction so it's this positive feedback loop so the production of some induces the production of more as a result of the consequences of oxytocin and so that is is critical in being able to to have children ultimately wait can i ask a question i actually i don't know you you mentioned nursing right mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. during breastfeeding i didn't realize that because i i just remember you know when i was nursing my kids I, I don't I guess I sh- I should have put together that there is I've, you know obviously there's an attachment there but you know that that physical like l- well the letdown of milk mm. is that somehow really I wonder if that's somehow <laughs> yeah so, related. so so physical stimulation of the nipples can actually promote the release of oxytocin and oh. there is you know certainly a role of of that in the production of milk, in lactation itself. And then again, you have that positive feedback loop where you produce more oxytocin, you increase the signaling. And so that improves the connection that you feel to the baby, right? Oh my God, I love that. And actually, every time I hug my kids, I'm like, give me a hit of that oxytocin. It's so true that it's such a strong, that that bonding. Okay, sorry, go on. And so, and so, you know, yes, it's super important in in kind of the whole female reproduction 
system. Um, but just like the others, it's a neurotransmitter. It's a hormone. So a hormone is, again, a chemical messenger that that travels through our circulatory system um, and has far-ranging effects. It's produced by the in the hypothalamus. And then, of course, it is secreted by the pituitary gland, which is at the base of the brain. And it has impacts in both men and women. So it's not just women. It's not just childbirth. It's not just labor. But interestingly, in addition to those types of actions, sex and orgasm lead to increases in oxytocin as well. And so these increases uh, of oxytocin in men and women during sex and during orgasm actually increase the the bonding behavior between between people during sexual activity so it's not just parent to child bonding it's partner to partner bonding and as a result it it leads to increases um in sexual activity um because of course you get that reward behavior right you have an increase in it when you have sexual activity then you have more sexual activity um but it also increases empathy and trust and relationship building um it's often referred to as the cuddle hormone as as just you said you know you want to give the kids a hug get that little hit of oxytocin mm-hmm. um, levels of oxytocin increase during physical contact such as hugging as well as stimulation of the nipples but also orgasm and so it's released during these activities that are directly related to bonding um, and so again evolutionary benefits of these types of chemical messengers um, and so in addition to kind of the sexual function and the reproductive function, oxytocin is also implicated in social function. So it actually impacts that bonding behavior, which we just discussed, but it also facilitates the creation of group memories. It also improves social recognition and also other functions involved in social interactions. Um, and, and increases in oxytocin has also been implicated or demonstrated to play a role in reduction in betrayal aversion, which is really important with people that have anxiety uh, or worries about being rejected or unloved. So so higher levels of oxytocin actually lead people to be less worried about being betrayed by a person that they have a relationship with. Um, The other one that's implicated predominantly in attachment is a chemical called vasopressin. And a lot of you may be familiar with this in the context of the cardiovascular system and the excretory system. So this, again, is a hormone produced by the hypothalamus and then is secreted by the pituitary gland. And it actually works in concert with oxytocin. They actually have some redundant um, receptors on different cells so they can signal through similar pathways. But vasopressin is most oftenly implicated in the context of the cardiovascular system and the excretory system. So vasopressin is actually used as a diuretic, so it promotes water loss, essentially. It increases um, filtration through particular regions of the kidneys called the nephrons, um, but it also leads to increases in arterial blood pressure um, as well. And so they're not exactly sure how those relate to kind of social behaviors. But again, a lot of these evolutionary behaviors that lead to these changes in the fight or flight response or how you interact with other organisms can implicate things like social behavior um, as well as sexual bonding. But one of the big things that vasopressin is also implicated in is this protective response in response to stress. So if someone perceives a threat, the vasopressin levels increase and it leads you to want to protect those around you. So kind of, it's very, very well characterized in the context of, of, of parents and children where they perceive a stress and it, and the increases of vasopressin 
lead to social changes in their behavior that want them to protect their children from that perceived threat. So those are kind of the three key categories of romantic love. Of course, we also talked about some other things as just mentioned, things like cortisol, which is a a stress molecule. Um, The immune system is obviously intricately involved. Um, And then, of course, you have structural regions in the brain and in the body that also impact your ability to form and maintain these types of connections. You know what I love about this episode, Andrea? <laughs> I, I, I feel like it, it real. I'm having a kumbaya moment. I feel like it really <laughs> drives home why I love doing this with you. Because, you know, we started out where, where I was presenting some population health research and, you know, data on the, 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 the impact of relationships and connectedness on our health. And then you provided that really micro perspective and, and gave the, the run down on on you know the, the chemicals and the hormones that are involved in this I don't know it's just I think it's really cool and I I love, I, I love it there. I mean I think it's <laughs> I mean obviously you know I I love the chemical signaling and I love the messenger I mean you know I took this class in graduate school called cell signaling and it's probably one of the more difficult classes just because it's so comprehensive and there's so much going on but but it really underscores how all of these tiny little cellular processes lead to how we are as a full organism, right? Not just how our organs function, but how we interpret all of these cues and actually relay it into how we interact with people on a population level. And it's, I mean, it's so complex. Obviously, there's so much more to be learned about this this particular topic in, you know, specifically, but, but it really underscores how really interconnected we all are and how it really is a network of chemicals. Well, and as you said earlier, I think that this, episode really drives home how multifactorial you know our, our health is and how in in, mm-hmm. in one 45 minute episode we were talking about social determinants of, of health and in, really in the same context as you know our neurotransmitters and you know mm-hmm. it, it just I think that 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 that's really awesome but anyway, I, I hope that folks enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. Uh, Andrea, do you want to take us home? Sure. So thanks for joining us today to talk a little bit about love. I might have a little bit of a bias there because it happens to be my last name, but you know. Um, We hoped you learned a thing or two. And if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We also want to give a special thanks to our patrons who help support the pod. If you want to help too, check out www.patreon.com slash unbiased science. We have three tiers of membership to choose from. Um, we will be giving shout outs to some of our mad scientists each episode. So today we want to give a special thanks to Amanda Gripe, Michael Vandover, JV Rossman, Michelle Whitford, and Eileen Lofren. Um, next episode, we are tackling another topic that's relevant to many and is rife with misconceptions, and that's going to be clean beauty. We will continue to provide updates on COVID-19 on our social media accounts, so be sure to follow us there on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. I am a scientist. Yeah, uh, I am a scientist.